Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. Welcome back, and thanks for listening. My guest on today's episode is Liz Kislick, a management consultant and executive coach, and a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Liz's TEDx talk, Why There's So Much Conflict at Work and What You Can Do to Fix It, has received more than a quarter million views. Liz specializes in developing high-performing leaders and workforces and for 30 years has helped family-run businesses, national nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies across the world. Enjoy the discussion. I'm Liz Kislick. I'm a management consultant and executive coach and I write for Harvard Business Review and Forbes, mostly about the things I care about. And that is that people should have good work in good workplaces and be able to grow as much as their potential allows. Great, thank you. I think that's, uh, that's something that a lot of people probably want more in their life <laughs> to be able to grow to their full potential. Um, let's start off by talking a little bit about your 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 contributing writer to HBR, Forbes, and number number of other uh, publications. Those are two publications that that I read um, as much as I can. Um, I remember kind of a treat to myself, and you'll you'll probably appreciate this. Back in the day when I was traveling as a consultant so much. Um, and on the road quite a bit. I used to treat myself at the airport by buying myself a local, the, the latest HBR. And there was something about having that HBR in your hands, um, going through the different articles. And then inevitably, this would happen to me, Liz, whoever was sitting next to me on either side, depending on where I was sitting on the plane, they would see an article or they'd see the cover and they'd say, um, are you done with that? And you know, the HBR is like full of information. I'm never done with it. Like you, you carry it with you. But I noticed that there were these curious minds um, on the airplane that saw something either on the cover article or an article, or even the way I was annotating and taking notes from it. So I'd be curious to start there. Like, how did you get involved with HBR? And what has your experience been with HBR as such a wonderful publication? Oh, um, how did I get started? Um... I think I was, so first of all, I had been reading it for a very long time because mm -hmm. like you, I found that it sparked ideas for me, that sometimes it dealt with problems that I could see on the horizon hadn't dealt with yet. And so it was great to have a kind of backdrop. Uh, sometimes it was a problem that I was already dealing with, but often it was just a way to think more deeply with the great value of having lots of different ways to think more deeply at once instead of reading a book and having a deep dive into a single subject. Mm -hmm. And um, sometimes things just come together. And other times it is just really nice to have lots of new thoughts. So mm -hmm. I always found it a very... Um, deep read. I never bought it in the airport. I will say I, I subscribed because I wanted to mm -hmm. make sure I had it. Sure. And um, then as I got more environmentally conscious, 
I went to the digital only. Sure. Yeah. But I find that I still print out quite a few because if I want to study something, I do that better on paper than I do on screen. Mm -hmm. And um, I guess I had an introduction almost casually to an editor there at some point. And I sent her several fully written pieces at once. Mm -hmm. So that, I mean, it was a ridiculous amount of work, but my instinct was that out of, I think it was three pieces at once, she was sure to like one of them. Right. And in fact, that was what happened. Um, and now the process is sometimes I pitch pieces and sometimes my current editor says, we're looking for someone to write about these things. Are you interested? You know, it's it's a dialogue now. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing that you just said that just resonated with me a great deal was that the printing out of articles. Um, it's I mean, people that know me and even even managers I've worked for, bosses I've worked for, have known me to be that person who will go that extra step and print out an article and sort of mark it and hand it to them, almost like a curated experience. Um, and I, too, found, especially on the heavier topics, the ones that talk about culture, which we're going to talk about, talk about middle management, all of those things that really... Um, are really hard to kind of finagle and get your hands around. I always felt it important to print those articles out and sit with them and walk with them and reflect on them, um, which is why it was hard for me to part with the magazine when somebody would ask for it. Like it was a People magazine that I had just finished in 20 minutes. No, nothing against People magazine. I love that magazine as well. But chances are HBR is going to be with you a little bit longer. And then like you with the, you know, the environmental imprint piece, I remember at one point my husband said to me, okay, we have stacks of HBR all over the apartment. Are you going to give them to somebody? Are you going to? And I said, you know, it's a it's a great point. So one of the things we did at my last uh, my last workplace was we had a little library, and um, I just started bringing them in and putting them there because a lot of what's in there and a lot of what you write about are topics that sustain. Yes, right. It's not it's not a one and done. Like oh, I figured it out. I never need to look at it again. And I have a a mentee of mine also who subscribes to the little, almost like the little booklets that HBR does where they they curate a topic about management or leadership or change and they put their articles all in like a compendium. Um, and his his library has those and he treats himself to that. So a lot of that resonated with me when you were talking about the importance of uh, printing out certain things. Um, and then you also contribute to Forbes. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And um for Forbes, I get to do something interesting that I don't do for HBR. You're right. The publishing term, and I guess in other places too, is evergreen content. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what I mostly write about, because it's what I work on all mm -hmm. the time, is so much of the human experience right. at work for good, for not so good, for what on earth do you do about it? And um, humans are humans. We shift to accommodate our circumstances. And that's true whether you're talking technology, politics, um, whatever is in the zeitgeist at the time. Yeah. But underneath that, I believe we are still humans. And so you need to keep revisiting I yeah. just had a question this morning, as a matter of fact, that had to do with whether I felt differently about Gen Z entrance into the workforce versus millennials. Was I still feeling that millennials were certain ways? And in fact, I hadn't felt those ways about millennials. Right. Um, I felt quite positive about millennials from the beginning every cadre of less experienced people are less experienced. Right. And they are shaped by their times. Um, but that is not a bar for working together. Of course we can work mm -hmm. together. We just have to think about it, you know, and it is good for all of us to work with people who are not like us. It expands yeah. our thinking 
makes what we think available to a broader audience. And I mean that whether you are a writer or a leader. Mm -hmm. And uh, so one of the things that I do for Forbes is frequently I get to interview interesting authors or senior leaders. Um, Recently, I interviewed Michael Dowling, who is the CEO of Northwell Health, which is, I think, the largest private employer in New York State if Mm -hmm. I have that right. And having come through two years of pandemic, we talked a lot about how you make decisions in uncertain times and deal with those kinds of travails, things that will be continuing and that people need all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's a great opportunity to look at what other thoughtful people are thinking and apply that to my construct of what will always be useful to help people do better and feel better at work. Right. And I, and I love the fact that you kind of use the term evergreen. I mean, that's a term that's probably used in the publishing world, but it's also something that I think as we kind of think, as we dig into kind of the human condition, there are a lot of these topics or threads that are, that are evergreen, right? Like what motivates us, what, what we dream about, um, what keeps us up at night. I mean, I, I think back so much from my consulting years, you know, two decades in consulting, and I remember the questions that I would pose to some clients were oftentimes unexpected questions, but they were also the questions that they were desperate for somebody to ask them. They just never had a forum for someone to ask them. And so I think what's fascinating about be it HBR or Forbes or whatnot, these are these are publications, these are um, resources that a lot of leaders use. And when they read an article or they read a discussion or an op-ed piece, it stirs something up in them. And it's from a place of stirring that I think change actually happens and transformation happens. Is that is that kind of your experience? It certainly can be in the sense that I have been hired directly after someone reading one of my pieces or maybe more in particular, um, I did a TEDx talk on conflict at work and I've gotten hired directly off that because people say, oh, she understands the thing that we're dealing with. As soon as I saw that, I knew. So two things come up. One is she's talking about what happens here. Mm -hmm. And the other, oddly enough, is my people wouldn't hate her. And so when a leader can see that they can bring a stranger in who will not be rejected immediately, Mm -hmm. that's comforting because I don't know what your experience was for many of my projects, the consulting projects much more than the coaching. Mm -hmm. It's very disruptive to go through an assessment to pull people out of their regular daily life so that I can interview them and sometimes interview them quite deeply. And then the leaders have to hear what I see, which often matches significantly what they see, but it's put together in a way that almost makes them more responsible, practically obligated to do something about it. And that is, I think, exactly what you're talking about in the sense of stirring them. Yes. So that they see either that it's really untenable to keep experiencing the downsides they're experiencing, and sometimes that there are upsides that they are not addressing at all. You know, they're leaving money on the table um, or just not accomplishing what they could. And so any of those, in my family, we say, I can smell the wood burning. (laughs) You know, you know, there's a deep thought process happening. Right, right. You know, it's interesting. I love the fact that you brought up the TED Talk because I watched it twice. I rewatched it this morning. And there's there's a piece that really jumped out to me that I loved. And you used a word and that word was excavate or excavation. Um, And I love that word because it's um, well, it's evocative, right? Like it, it, it paints a picture and 
you used it in a way which which is we have to excavate to really kind of understand the source of conflict or the source of you know challenge or change and there was something i wrote i feel like it was maybe even two years ago um on linkedin as an article i have to go back and look but i, I essentially sort of posited that change managers or those folks that are leading in change are, are are excavators and and one of the things i i said in this article was you know, sometimes we have to lift up the rocks, right? You really have to lift up the rocks. And when you do, you're going to see bugs and you're going to see worms and you're going to see, but you're also going to see this entire ecosystem that, um, that lives in a way uh, under the pressure and in the dark. And it's like you said, there's, there's a lot of goodness in there. We can't just say, oh, that's dark and uh, scary and moist and, and we don't understand it. Therefore, we throw it away. It's also usually the most fertile ground um on on which to work and so i you know i kind of put that out there like as people are leaning into this you have to lift up the rocks and similarly i heard an analogy earlier this week which was you know the old adage of like you're picking people up out of the river downstream right there's all these people that are like that are like struggling and you're like picking them out of the water and somebody said why don't we go upstream and find out what's pushing them in Yep. I, the other word that I'll give you that I think is so important is context. Mm -hmm. The history of an organization, the things that have taken place already that some people remember and some people don't, the experiences, including triumphs and woundings that people have experienced elsewhere they bring with them, right, to your organization. So the thing is that there are ways in which we're all the same, but there are just as many ways in which we are different. And understanding those things, and it's not that hard. You don't have to spend a week with every person. But you have to be open to knowing all the people. And that really helps first create and then cement the ability to go forward together as opposed to going forward at odds. And going forward together doesn't mean you have to agree all the time. Disagreement is often healthy. It's often the way you come up with the best solutions. It's the way you learn more about the world you're operating in. But disagreement is something that happens along the way. It's at a point in time. It's when it becomes a kind of permanent state that you're having a kind of trouble that you need to work on. Yeah, and one of the, I mean, it it reminds me, as you were saying this, getting to know people, the importance of getting to know people. It reminds me a little bit of, I think in, in late January, you wrote this article, which I really appreciated in Forbes about middle managers and helping them succeed. And one of the, you know, you, you kind of have some headlines in there, bolded headlines. And one of them is encourage managers to treat employees as full human beings. And one of the things that, that really kind of stood out to me is in order to treat someone as a full human being, you have to lean in and be curious and inquire as to who they are as a full human being. And that includes some of the stuff you're talking about, which is, you know, where they came from, what motivates them, what they're hopeful for, what they're challenged by, but it takes time. And you alluded to this before, you know, when we're doing things like assessments and trying to help an entire organization change or transform, if we overlook the sort of full human aspect of this, we we oftentimes get it wrong. And, and businesses are such, essentially just a collection of human experiences. Um, and so I, I would love to like maybe kind of hear your thoughts on this aspect of you know, context setting is so important and it comes with getting to know full human beings. But that also, I get the sense, is something that people or organizations are still a little bit skittish about. Yes. Um, So all of us, you know, even for ourselves, have parts we don't like so much. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that 
we're going to suddenly find parts of someone that we don't really want to deal with, mm-hmm. that can be scary. There are people who have all kinds of reasons that their life is hard. Mm-hmm. And many managers feel beset by their responsibilities. And some of them will actually own up to the idea that they don't want to have to be responsible for somebody else's life. Mm-hmm. And it can be hard for managers to learn that you don't have to be responsible for the other person as a whole human being. You're only responsible for them at work. But you're much more effective if you understand who that whole human being is. And I want to say something that's actually pretty businessy, which sure. is in, t- in today's labor market, if you don't know your people, a significant segment of them will be paying attention to other organizations where they can be known as themselves. And they will be looking for places where they can feel more comfortable. Wow. Like that just stirred up a whole bunch in me, Liz. I so I'm so glad you said that because the fact that you said they will be looking for organizations that do choose to get to know the, all of them. That's so true. It's really hard for us to do our best when we feel like we're leaving a whole chunk at home or on the sidewalk or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And there have been very interesting ways that the pandemic has taught us about this on both sides of the equation. Think mm-hmm. of how many people really just felt better working at home mm-hmm. because they didn't have to commute, because they could, this is not my recommendation, I don't do it myself, but there are people who almost bragged about wearing pajamas on the bottom every day. <laughs> right. Right? I, mean, I could never happened. do that either, Liz. I, right. I always had no. to dress. I was like, I, I, can't, actually, I can't work in that attire. That's right. I, I dress and come to an office because that feels good to me. But for some yeah. people, so great to be at home, so great to be able to have a kind of more civilized day and more control over your meals and more access to people you love if you live with them and all of that. And on mm-hmm. the other hand, there have been people for whom it has been excruciatingly hard to work from home if their living environment does not match what their work environment is like. Right. If they feel that they have to blur their backgrounds or actually leave their cameras off and sometimes their microphones off because they don't want people who are their work colleagues to know how many people they share an apartment with or who are the ill people that they have to tend to from time to time Mm -hmm. or just the fact that I, I know this will sound silly, but they have no taste in decor. Right. So people don't want to be judged for any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all have different needs and finding ways to accommodate those as much as possible. I'm not talking about accommodating needs to the point where you cannot manage your business. Right. But there's usually a lot more leeway than managers often think. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the really interesting parts of this this ongoing discussion that work workplaces have had is you know and, and you say this in the article which i really appreciated is you know it starts with asking employees how they are and what's in their way of work so even in in the sense of the pandemic and working from home and you know very conscious that not everybody had that opportunity but there were also um missed opportunities for people to ask the question, what's in your way of work? Uh, like what's getting in the way? What's what's um, something that unbeknownst to the organization or a team or a manager is um, a barrier to being successful? You know, you you mentioned the, the decor. It was an interesting discussion I had with a colleague uh, probably midway through the sort of shutdown. And what was really interesting was the artwork 
on the walls behind behind this person generated more topics of conversation or questions or comments that initially were kind of conversation starters, but but when sort of overused, it ended up making that particular person very self-conscious about what was on their walls. And you're right, they ended up blurring backgrounds or they felt um, they went from a place of inquiry to a place of insecurity. Um, and I, And again, not that that was the intention, but that was the impact. And so it is a balance. It's a really interesting balance um, that everybody's still talking a lot about. You know, there's a difference, Bill, between what I guess I'll call caring versus scrutinizing. Yeah, it's a very good distinction. (laughs) And we are scrutinized at work. Mm -hmm. And for any of us who do not fit whatever the primary profile is in our workplace, we often feel more scrutinized. So scrutiny is tough. Um, It implies skeptical and potentially harsh judgment. That's very different from being known. And that's why I want to go back to the idea of how are you? And even how are you today? You know, Um, somebody who had a flat tire is likely to be in worse shape than somebody who didn't, even if they're coping. Mm -hmm. Being aware of that is useful. Um, What's in the way? So I was uh, just with a new client last week and at the uh, assessment phase Mm -hmm. of a project. And I ask a lot of different work groups what's in the way? And I ask them, and if it wasn't in the way, what would you be doing differently? Right. (laughs) Right? Because it's interesting to learn, here are the things that they have attached frustration to, Mm -hmm. or that they feel have caused them to give up on things, or that they think create extra burden for them. Often they're right. I'll say actually mostly Mm -hmm. they're right. But if they don't have an idea of what they would do if that barrier were removed, then you have to ask more questions about how they actually do their work. Because if I'm going to do the work to remove a barrier as a manager, Mm -hmm. a leader, an outside consultant, anything, I want to know that there's going to be return for that effort. Removing a barrier is usually hard. They're Mm -hmm. stuck there for a reason. And so I want to know, what are you going to make of the extra space, extra time, extra energy, extra resources, whatever it is, that will now be available? How will you apply those? What will be better for the organization? What will be better for your colleagues? What will be better for you? Sometimes just less stress is enough. But very often, if you are dealing with thoughtful people, they can tell you what else they would be able to accomplish. And that then is motivating to decision makers. And I think what's really important about what you said is that, you know, when you give people that space back or that time back, um, and if they've been thoughtful about it, then then chances are they've already got at least two to three ideas sort of in in the hopper of, hey, this is something that time spent can generate value, can generate um, morale, whatever that is. But I also think, and I'm curious if you've come across this, um, Liz, in your time, sometimes it can be a very intimidating thing because you say to someone, I'm going to give you back time or I'm going to remove a barrier or I'm going to simplify this process so that you don't have to do maybe this manual work as much. And I want you to think about how we can innovate or improve or ideate. Um, Sometimes people get worried because they feel like, wow, now there's a whole nother set of eyes on me, a different lens of expectations, if you will, that um, can be daunting. Have you encountered that with people? Yeah, I will say the way you said it sounded pretty scary, actually. Right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Sometimes how people feel. Yeah. I'm going to relieve you of the burden you've been complaining about for years, but then I'm going to ask you for a completely new thing. 
Right. I'm going to ask you to help transform our company. Right. Well, I may not know how to do that. I have to say that in my experience, I don't, how do I describe this? I don't actually label things that way. Okay. Here's, here's what I mean. I encourage clients not to say, we're starting a new initiative to eliminate problem 47. Mm -hmm. But instead, to gather data about problem 47, to do some scenario planning, piloting, whatever. When they really understand it and are on their way to fix it, then, oh, and by fixing it, you can't fix it in the conference room or the boardroom. You have to fix it with real people. Um, Then to be talking about, oh, problem 47 seems to be changing. Have you noticed this change? Mm. What could we do now, now that it's changing? Should we continue, you know, in this way and try to get rid of more of it? Are there other things we should work on? What's different? What can we do? The more that these solutions are built with the people that they will affect generally, mm-hmm. the better the result will be, whether it is the innovation you thought you wanted when you were sitting in the conference room or not. Yeah. I mean, I love it because that kind of hits on this this point that you made in this article that I also really loved. It's it's support managers to fix whatever problems they can. And even the way you you just asked different questions about it. It wasn't, you know, you didn't say, oh, what are you going to do for me lately? But it was, hey, what feels different about problem 47? Us having looked at it even further or us having made these small tweaks over here. Um, what else? Asking the question, what else? Or what are we missing? Feels less intimidating or less uninviting than that you know, gargantuan behemoth of a question of, you know, how are you going to help us transform? And, you know, you, you talk about the importance of, you know, if managers feel that leaders, be it in a boardroom or elsewhere, really have their backs, right? right. And, and And understand that they can reconcile some of these, as you as you said, some of these questions, then they will be more innovative. They will naturally arrive at a place where they feel not only support, but relief. Um, and that, I think, is something that a lot of organizations are still trying to work at, frankly. Actually, I don't even know that that many are working at it because they may not have noticed that it's an option. I want to go back to, you use the word relief, and mm-hmm. that's what I was thinking about. Sometimes as you're fixing problem 47, you know when somebody's been sick or injured and they're getting better and maybe they're doing rehab and have exercises or have a modified routine or whatever that is, mm-hmm. they also need to rest more. Yeah. And working on problem 47 in some ways is more exhausting than just living with the problem 47 we know. We're used Absolutely. to that exhaustion. We're heading toward burnout, but we know what we're dealing with. When when we shift the problem, everything is new. And if you ask for new deliverables too soon after that, I would actually use a stronger word than you used, Bill, and say that except for the most courageous or inventive people, it's actually threatening okay. to say, yeah. you know, we've taken away your old problem and now we're giving you a new problem. Go to it. Yeah. It feels... It, it feels like that could be, on a, on, a, on a feeling sense, absolutely that feels like a threat, right? Especially because if your livelihood has been built up into that, right? Yeah, yeah. The other thing is um, we often try to solve problems forward. What's the next step? What's the next step? But when you're doing change, It can be much more helpful, as strange as this sounds, to solve the problems backward. And here's what I mean. When you know you are trying to create a significant change, 
it can be very, very helpful to look out into the future, and it might be weeks or months or even years, and say, what will we be like if, when? Mm -hmm. Here's the optimal state that we're trying to create. You can't see me, but I am gesturing into the future. Mm -hmm. And this is where we want it to be. When you can hold up that picture of this is where we are heading. So what would we have to do just before that? Say that picture is six months out. What would we do at five months, four months, three months? So now from today, as we are manipulating and dealing with problem 47, it's actually easier to see what some of the next steps might be mm-hmm. to get to the two or three month point rather than just make it a blank canvas as if there are no goals except what you, the manager, can come up with yourself. Right. Which even that is a daunting thing, right? It's that aspect of, as a manager, you're expected to figure it all out. You know, the analogy sometimes I'll give people is if you take a road trip somewhere, if you take a really long road trip somewhere, um, yes, you know the final destination. You know you want to end up there, you know, by this date. But mostly what you'll probably do is find waypoints along the way. You'll find stopping points, you'll points of interest where you're going to refuel, where you're going to eat, where you're going to sleep. And all of those investments in time and planning make it that much better when you do arrive at the destination. But to just sort of skip that step and say, we're going to end up in Orlando on this day and only focus on that could be, for some, depending quite unsettling because people want to know, well, what are the pieces that we're going to do along the way to make sure we're tracking or that we stay safe or that we take the optimal approach or conversely, take a very roundabout way to get there because of the things we're going to learn along the way. Um, And I think that's, as you're describing, sort of that backwards planning that oftentimes we skip because we're so focused on the endpoint. Yeah, that's a beautiful metaphor, and I want to add something to it. Please, yeah. So I think it's really incumbent on leaders to provide certain guidance for that trip. For example, we're going to end up in Orlando. Our biggest priorities along the way Mm -hmm. are the national parks. Yeah. I want to make sure we see the national parks. I also care about a good restaurant every once in a while, but I'd give one of those up rather than missing a national park. <laughs> Something right. that says, here are the priorities. Here are the crucial aspects of this that cannot be forgotten. And in effect, that you will be evaluated on when we look back at the trip. So it's mm-hmm. not just the the nervousness or fearfulness of how do I chart the course, but it is also what will mean success. In some right. organizations, they actually don't care how you get there. Right. Those are very, <laughs> right? Those are very challenging places to work and often not very safe places. Mm-hmm. But if they care how you get there and don't explain it, then you're in trouble all the time, too. Yeah. And and that piece around care, this is kind of the, the, the last area I'd love to, to talk a little bit about um, before kind of letting the listeners know a little bit more about where they can find this incredible that work, you know, work you're doing. This aspect of the care and you talk about like modeling the interactive care stance you want to see. And you just gave a great example of that, which is, you know, as a manager going along a trip or a journey saying, I individually care that we that we see the national parks or I care that we, you know, eat at this particular restaurant. Um, But it's, you know, you mentioned that aspect of we have to model that we have to we we as leaders ourselves have to uh, show that set of priorities. It's not necessarily intuitive for people to state what they need for one, state their priorities, and then enter into healthy debate or negotiations or to say, well, that's important to me for these reasons. 
Um, and I think one of the huge lessons we're, we're seeing amidst the pandemic, which is still raging on for a lot of people around the world, is how do we model that that care system, that, that stance of I care and I want to see and help uh, my teams along any journey, um, no matter how small or big that is. So I would love some thoughts on that because, you know, that the word care, capital C care, to me, was not something that was in the daily vernacular of a lot of organizations in the past that I've worked with. I happen to now be at an organization that that is capital C care, one of the things they're most focused on. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that, but would love your thoughts um, on, on how this is emerging. So I'm thinking in two different directions. I agree with you that years ago, the idea of getting things done and achievement, those were the priorities. Mm-hmm. It was not care, compassionate workplace, openness, what's now called transparency. It was not any of those things. It was accomplish mm-hmm. certain targets, and that's how you ensure job security. What's happening now, though, is going in a couple of different directions. So there are people who really do worry about their employees, have concerns about whether they feel well treated, whether they are Mm -hmm. satisfied at work, et cetera. And we can talk about that. But I want to point out something that is sort of a negative way station on that path. And that's people who talk about things like caring or respect in the abstract but don't actually model it. Yeah. And that's pretty prevalent. Um, Yes, it is. I am thinking of one client who really believes that anybody who can't behave respectfully, they don't belong here. And he will say that, but he does not understand that some of his joking or Mm -hmm. some of his pushing His peers, senior person, his peers, look to subordinates and other juniors as if he does not respect. And it's not clear whether he really does respect and this is just the way he behaves and it is okay with him Mm -hmm. and his colleague in that interaction, or if he also doesn't know that his colleague feels disrespected. And my position on this would be whatever you want to see in people with less power than you have, you have to be doing it yourself, actually, physically, verbally, all the time. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they don't believe you. They know it's not necessary. You're not doing it. Right. And it's a dissonance. Yeah. Correct. It's a dissonance. And more people have become successful over time by being like their boss or by, right? Or by delivering what their boss says they want than by behaving the way the boss says is important. Right. Now that may be shifting some now. I am hopeful that it is shifting, but it is not a massive shift across the entire culture. Right. And, you know, it, it brings to mind an example that I remember was a pretty uncomfortable moment, but one that stuck with me. And that is there was a there was a leader that made a declaration in in a boardroom and their declaration essentially said, if you're not losing sleep every night, you're not working hard enough on this. Oh, God. And I chose to speak up in that moment and um, disagree um, because I said to, to this particular leader amongst my peers, um, I prioritize my sleep so that when I do show up here or I do show up on a client site or I do show up 
that I'm actually able to do my best work, which in turn supports what we're trying to do here. So I disagree with what you're saying. <laughs> like, I don't think loss of sleep is a metric or measure that contributes to revenue growth. Um, but I remember that being a very risky in, in interaction. Um, I stuck by it. I had a lot of people come up to me afterwards and say, I'm really glad you said that. Can we have a conversation about it? But I wasn't seeing the behavior modeled for me. For sure. And that is a scary thing. Um, I'm going to give you a twist on the question. Sure. In case you or anybody in your audience is ever in a similar situation. Depending on how you feel about the power balance and how much courage you have in the moment and who else is in the room that might back you up. And as always, so many factors. Right. What you said was appropriate and it was also a direct challenge. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you can create an indirect challenge that might keep you just a little safer, just in case somebody was worried about that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. And then the question could be something like, so you've said that we need to be losing sleep or we're really not the kind of person who should be involved in this. We need to be taking it that seriously. I just want to check, are you speaking literally about sleep or are you looking for some kind of measure of commitment or intensity or dedication? Right. So that they have a chance to rethink. Because any direct challenge, so many people double down just automatically, almost instinctively. That's our lizard brain, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Instead of saying, oh, God, I didn't mean everybody should have sleepless nights and, you know, be stressed out and then have car crashes. No, what I really meant is it's really important to me that everybody cares so much that they are thinking of whatever it is we're trying to accomplish as the highest good and the most important thing they can deliver. Mm -hmm. Please, have your real lives. I didn't mean to say that you shouldn't be sleeping. In fact, I need you excessively healthy so that we right. can do what we need to do. I just think this is the biggest priority we've faced in the last 15 years, blah, blah, blah. I could totally see how that could have gone differently and, and in that indirect way to arrive at the same goodness. Many people feel like they have, I don't know what this is about us, what human thing this is, that we have to look like we're suffering and compare our suffering to feel like we are doing enough. Yeah. I mean, case in point, what happened at the Oscars the other night? You know, I don't feel prepared to comment on that because I think there are so many subtexts. And oh, I know. I won't comment either. I just think the fact that the fact that it's generated this much discussion essentially yes. is what I mean. Yeah. Is an indicator. Yes. yes. Also, we are not good self-regulators generally. No, no. Yeah. I mean, and that's, and you talk about that in the Ted talk, right? The amygdala, the lizard brain, the ancient brain. Um, these are all things that, you know, one of the things I've realized in, in my my studies over the years is the world has changed a tremendous amount, continues to change at the pace unprecedented every time we look at it. But our human brain is still quite ancient. Yes. And I'll give you a wonderful misquoted quote from uh, Rick Hansen, who I think is a has a doctorate in psychology, uh, neuroscience, I think mm -hmm. neuroscience, and um, has written a book called Neurodharma. Anyway, he talks about our brains being Velcro for the negative and Teflon for the positive. <laughs> That's a great, great reminder, yeah. Right? Because mm -hmm. in the jungle, if you were mistaken about the negative, you'd be dead. 
you would have no chance to continue looking for the positive. But if you happen to miss the positive one day, you were okay. Yeah, you had another day. Yeah. Right. Right. So we're really trained. And that's why we are so inclined to see threat. Our primitive response is all about, is there danger? Is there threat? Am I secure? Is it safe here? Mm -hmm. And until we feel satisfied in some way about those things, we do not function well. Yeah. Well, I knew we wouldn't unpack all the answers in an hour. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I can tell you that I like just chatting through this and, and even your approach. It's so, and you probably know this from your clients, it has such a calming effect. So like, and even just talking and listening and, and I got this with the Ted talk too, like you have a very grounding approach, which I really appreciate because of the same aspect of when we're in this world that is fast moving and we're trying to discern threat versus inquiry versus opportunity. uh, It can be really hard to find people that bring us back to that place of like, okay, care, for who you are and understand who you are and, and see what's under the surface. So I want to thank you for that first, first and foremost. Um, I'm, I'm glad our, our paths crossed. I would also love for you to take the opportunity to tell some listeners about where they can find more about you, the work you're doing. Obviously we mentioned HBR and Forbes. Um, I'm hoping people will kind of tune in and then and then read and follow, but would love for you to take an opportunity to tell people where they can find out more about the work you're doing, maybe reach out to you um, and benefit like I have done just this past hour. Bill, I really appreciate what you said. It's so gratifying um, about the groundedness. And those are things I think about all the time. And so I just thank you. That's, um, I appreciate it very much. And uh, in terms of finding more stuff, really the place to go is actually my website because I have there everything I've written in the last 10 plus years, which is a lot of stuff. I can Uh, imagine, yeah. And, you know, podcast recordings and the TEDx is there or you can find it on TED.com. The website is www.lizkislik.com. And uh, for any of your listeners who are interested, there's a free ebook there on how to manage the interpersonal aspects of conflict at work. That can be helpful. And um, you can get my weekly blog or my monthly newsletter or both. And um, there's a lot of content. Great. I appreciate you, uh, you pointing people to that. And I know like I've, I bookmarked it this morning. It was looking at a lot of this stuff as well. Um, you know, it's it's one of these things, it's always a really nice reminder for for those of us that have the privilege to do this work for as long as we've we've had the opportunity to do it. And I'll kind of bring it back to where we first started when you were talking about the intergenerational work. Um, one of the terms that I um, was beatified with uh, in many a workplace was the millennial whisperer. Um, and I was really proud of that and, and continued to be because what was interesting is a lot of times I worked with people in, in, in multiple generations in the workplace, because as a change manager, you lead people through change. And that's the one thing that is totally inclusive. Um, everybody's going through it, but I had this really interesting, um, experience where a lot of those in generation X, um, would start to say the you know the the things that a lot of people um, make mistakes and assumptions about different generations. One of those generations being millennials, and I found that just approaching it the way you described, of asking questions and getting to know and understanding people's passions, that um, a lot in the in the millennial um, generation had tremendous amount of value to bring. Um, they just weren't necessarily being seen that way or invited to the table or the room that way. Um, and so I ended up being this sort of bridge maker uh, and they ended up 
you know, coining it the millennial whisperer. Um, so I've had amazing conversations and interactions with a lot of talented people across across generations for which I'm grateful for. And it's why I continue to love doing this work. So um, just wanted to share that with you as well. Yeah. Now you can start on Gen Z because... I know. I'm super... And, they, and Gen Z makes me even more inspired. Yep. Um, the, the things that they're taking on as we, as we see, um, as we see right, you know, right before us in terms of the activism, the passion, the inquiry, um, the space, all of that. So I know it's like a whole nother career ahead of us, right? It's very enlivening. Mm -hmm. I will say that it is classically difficult for experienced people to think that inexperienced people can help them. Right. And not only is that, sometimes it's true. I mean, sometimes it's true, but it is mistaken to generalize in that way. Right. And one of the most wonderful opportunities is when an experienced pe person actually has to think about how do I explain this to somebody who doesn't already know it? Absolutely. Be that's where you find the holes. That's where you find the discontinuities and the things you patched together when you had to in a pinch once. Mm -hmm. There are opportunities to make everything better and to learn what you actually think. Right. I, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, that's why childlike wonder. Um, yeah. I've written on this a number of times as well as, you know, try and move through the world with childlike wonder or ask a child or trying to explain to your child what you do all day. I mean, I remember years ago, uh, my mom used to just say, what do you do all day? I don't know what change management is. And, um, you know, I tried to explain it to her in the textbook way and it never quite resonated. And then years later, I was at a board meeting with another change management person from McKinsey and she said she explained it to her four-year-old daughter. And her daughter said, so you're a doctor for businesses? And I thought that was perfect. So I explained that to my mom. And my mom was like, why didn't you say that years ago? It's like, <laughs> because it took a four-year-old to, right. to deduce it, you know, to slim it down. So right. yeah, childlike wonder is a, is, a, is a tool and a gift that I like to bring into this work often. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually think with that last story, you made several points at once. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Liz, thank you so much for your time. I'm really grateful that uh, our paths connected. Um, and I look forward to kind of echoing out the great work you're doing. Um, if there's anything I can do to help you along the way, feel free to reach out. Likewise, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks very much. <laughs>